Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. Today, I'm happy to welcome Madison Burrell to the podcast. Madison is a pediatric neuropsychologist specializing in epilepsy and seizures at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. She's here to talk about the psychological and emotional issues that can arise in children and adolescents with epilepsy, how to recognize the signs, where to turn, and what to expect from treatment options. Hi, Madison. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, To start out, why don't you tell us what exactly a neuropsychologist, a pediatric neuropsychologist does, what kind of patients you see, um, because this particular specialty is is new to me. Yeah, absolutely. And you're not alone. Even my colleagues I've worked with for many years still get us confused. <laughs> um, so pediatric, meaning I work with children. So that's pretty straightforward. Um, neuropsychologist, my training is as a typical psychologist. I have my PhD in clinical psychology. So I learned to do therapy, assessment, typical psychologist things. Um, The neuropsychologist comes into play because like an MD will go to medical school and get general medical training, then they start to specialize. A neuropsychologist also specializes in postdoc work, and that is focused on assessment and really learning those brain behavior relationships. And that's my specialty. So a little different than um, a psychologist because I tend not to do as much therapy anymore. I do more of the assessment and really focusing on neuroanatomy and understanding how the brain um, works to, to get all those behaviors that everybody shows. Got it. So what kind of patients do you see? So anybody who has any child who has some sort of learning problem Um, emotional problems, social problem may come to see me. Um, Sometimes uh, they may go see one of my colleagues sort of to go off a little bit more what you said. I'm a little different than a speech language pathologist who would focus on language and speech where I'm going to look at intelligence, memory, attention, a range of abilities. And so sometimes a child will go somewhere else first because they're having an attention problem um, or a language problem or a social problem, but they'll come to us to really understand the full picture because it's not so clear if it's just one thing. It may be a bunch of things. And same with a neurologist. They may also refer to us because there's learning or social or emotional problems accompanying a disorder um, like epilepsy. And they want to see what do we have to say about the child's functioning that may be related to that disorder. Got it. So uh, do most of your patients come to you with a doctor referral or is it sometimes uh, parent, guardian, advocate, you know, super parents reaching out and wanting these evaluations? Yeah. So the most of the part, we, we do work in an academic 
medical center. I work at Children's Hospital in DC. So um, most of my referrals are coming straight from the neurologist working with the epilepsy team and same with colleagues of mine who work with oncologists, cardiologists, those specialties. However, um, depending on where you are, this is DC, there's a lot of um, savvy teachers and parents and they know that um, we can also be helpful to them. Even if you don't have a medical disorder, we, you know, looking at the kinds of problems like attention, learning in general, again, social problems, they'll come to us to answer those questions of this child's not thriving in some way. Can you help us understand why? Now, we've spoken a lot on this podcast about the the physical mental health implications that epilepsy can have on adult patients. I'm wondering, you know, what are some of those common effects that you see in the pediatric epilepsy population? You know, what sort of statistics do we have? Yeah, so we really do see that those same problems that you see in adulthood probably started um, when they were younger, if they had their epilepsy younger. Um, in particular, there's certain epilepsies. We know that epilepsy um, is one of the bi biggest incidences of onset is in childhood, under age five. So those kids, especially the genetic epilepsies, you're going to see a lot of those issues emerge quickly because they're not walking, they're not talking. Um, those kinds of more severe difficulties can show up real quick. And then other things like attention problems, language problems, social problems, we may not recognize those as beyond maybe just having a chronic medical condition as a problem until we expect those kids to start having friends and needing to pay attention more. So, um, so we see them emerge at all different ages, but they can be very early. What sort of studies have been done? What statistics do we have access to? Yeah, so, so one of the first questions we always ask is, how common is this? Right. So, so, you know, I, even any parent gets a diagnosis of epilepsy, like what are my chances that this is going to be something else I have to deal with in addition to these seizures? And so that's um, the studies that have been done most is just really identifying the problems and those problems, you know, we have are similar to adults where about a third of, if you take everybody with epilepsy, about a third of people, children with epilepsy have some sort of comorbidity. And that's the range. It can be intellectual impairment, it can be ADHD, it can be autism, um, it could be uh, language problems, motor problems. About That's probably in general if you take them all together. So the good news is most kids do really well. Having said that, there are other factors in the person's epilepsy or other certain types of epilepsies. I mentioned the genetic epilepsies already. They're going to have a higher incidence where it's more common. So you take something like tuber sclerosis complex. But that's a little bit higher that those kids have autism. And that's closer to 50% of kids with TSC may have autism. So it depends on other risk factors that go along with their type of epilepsy, because we do know epilepsy is pretty broad in what it can present as. And so those statistics will change with that type of epilepsy that you have. Now, you know, 
talk about, you know, different learning disabilities, ADHD, these sort of different comorbidities that that are more likely to impact um, these pediatric patients with epilepsy. What about anxiety and depression? Yeah, so that's definitely part of, in my my world, of the scope of comorbidities and anxiety and depression. Depression is the most common in adults. I think it's a little bit different for kids. I think it presents a little bit uh, more like anxiety is when they're littler and then that depression may set in a little bit later as they think about the consequences of their epilepsy. Um, and earlier on, there's a lot more fear. Sometimes that's the fear of having a seizure. Sometimes it's the fear of what other peers may think. You know, it's the fear of having a being out of control if they were to have a seizure and not know what's going to happen. Um, so that anxiety and depression are definitely part of it. There's also um, some shared brain regions that those same areas that um, manage our anxiety and depression are also one of the most epileptic areas in the brain, and that's the temporal lobe. You mentioned some of the different sort of ways that anxiety or depression may show in children. What other signs should parents be on the lookout for when trying to determine if they need to take their child to be evaluated? Yeah, so that's a it's a good question because I do think you know, some families and some doctors sort of hesitate and say, you know, this is maybe just the adjustment to having seizures. Maybe it's just, you know, the the stress of that. And is it really something that we need to address? And um, I would say you're going to do the same thing as if your child doesn't have it epilepsy. If you see something that's impacting their functioning and you're worried about them, you need to go have it evaluated. And and those signs can be, you know, changes in their behavior, um, not being out there socially as much as you would expect, um, changes in sleep, eating, just like all of us, if we're depressed or anxious, we have those kinds of changes. the other thing that kids do a little bit differently than adults is some regression. So maybe they were, you know, fine at night and, you know, dry, and then they start wetting the bed again, you know, and, um, or they're a little bit more clingy. They won't go out um, anymore. And they used to, you know, go fine into the park or, you know, over to a friend's house, but they want to stay home and they want to be close to you and they have a hard time separating from parents. So those are some of the signs that things might be changing for them or they're not doing as well. Hi, this is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy. Since 1998, Cure Epilepsy has raised over $85 million to fund more than 270 epilepsy research projects in 17 countries. Learn what you can do to support epilepsy research by going to cureepilepsy.org. Now back to Seizing Life. Just thinking of the doctors that a child with epilepsy is going to see regularly, you know, clearly they're neurologists, they're epileptologists. Is this something that um, a parent should expect their epileptologist to be screening for and discussing with them? Yeah, so it's actually part of the American Academy um, of Neurology quality measures for taking care of epilepsy. So it's very much in the literature and guidelines for best practices. 
Having said that, I give the neurologists, you know, a little bit of grace here where they're trying to deal with a lot of things and, and they're trying to address a lot of things. And especially at the beginning when it's your first visit, they just want you, their main job is to stop seizures and to address the medications to do that. So you may not hear about it at the first visit. However, it is something that I think over time and probably on an annual basis, again, people see their neurologist at different rates. So it's hard to say it should be something that um, is discussed. And there is literature to show that the neurologists are aware that parents want to know about this and are concerned. And so the neurologists are having that conversation a lot more often. Well, that is good to know. And also, I suppose, you know, for the parents out there, if your doctor, if your epileptologist isn't discussing the psychological impacts, ask, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, this, the message that epilepsy is not just the seizures, it's more than that is really a message that is loud and clear. And I do think for the most part, unless they've been under a rock, most neurologists are understanding that it's, that it's beyond just the seizures. And so asking about learning problems, behavior problems, emotional problems is more common, we will hope. But yes, as parents, you want to do the same thing. It's a mental health check. You don't have to just talk to your neurologist. You can talk to your pediatrician. And if it's a concern, you know, you can talk to anyone who has that experience of knowing kids, a teacher, anything like that. Are there certain things that a parent can look out for to try and determine if it is a cause of the epilepsy or if it's the cause of a medication? Because I think there's probably some fear, and we'll get to it in a minute, of adding a new medication to try and treat something if it's the result of a medication that the child is already taking. Yeah. So I think, you know, again, just... As parents and with a new diagnosis, you need to get to some stability. You don't know what's what until you get a little bit of time and a little bit of understanding. And 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 I completely agree. The focus is on this the seizures, taking those medications. I do think as much of a pain can be sometimes keeping careful track of when a seizure medication was started. A little bit different than... Um, when it's kind of a situational or a family history genetic loading of attention problems or social problems. And a medication effect is pretty quick. It's pretty acute. So you're going to have a quick behavioral change. Um, and if you really can't explain that by some significant event, then it could be a medication. So that's kind of one factor. If it's a little bit more of a gradual and the same and if you, but if you have a quick change and you just had a medication change, that's more likely a medication effect. So when do you suggest that uh, a parent reach out to a neuropsychologist and how frequently do they meet with them? Yeah, so that's a good question. So again, it kind of depends on your epilepsy. So if you know that... Um, you know, most epilepsy, most seizures are, are treated successfully with medications. And so, th so that's good. Um, there's other medications, uh, uh, seizure types that are um, 
more of a progressive long term, you know, you're going to be dealing with it for a while. Um, sometimes, you know, that at the beginning, sometimes you don't. Um, if if that's the case, a good time to see a neuropsychologist is as early as possible. So you can kind of get a baseline. For example, you know, your kind of epilepsy may be harder to treat or um, there really is no cure and you know it's you know the seizures are going to be a while getting a good baseline to know where your child is at is important we always recommend that when you know you're going to have something big like a surgery or some other device implanted or things like that you want to kind of get that baseline before you make all these changes you can also do that with medications so um, sometimes we'll just do a quick screen before starting medications um, just to see where a child is at and then we'll follow up you know a month or two later after that um, most people don't get to see a psychologist every year a neuropsychologist every year they'll tend to wait until something big changes and that's for good reason it's it's time intensive it's a day-long appointment um, and you may not need it um, and the waits can be long depending on where you are um, and there may not be a problem for a while. So a lot of children do really well early on. Language is okay. Motor is okay. They start school. They learn to read okay. It's not until maybe they get to third grade um, or fourth grade or fifth grade when the demands go up on them. And that could be social demands. That could be attentional demands. And that's when you see the problems. And so coming in for a neuropsychology evaluation at that point may be the best point because that's when you're having problems and that's when you need to have the recommendations and understand what's going on. What should be expected in terms of treatment for uh, one of these psychological comorbidities? So the good news is basically all the treatments that we know work in children without epilepsy work for children with epilepsy. And that includes medication, which is Again, something that parents are really hesitant to do, and I really get that when their child is on other medications. Um, but the initial thought, and I still have some neurologists that will say this, that, oh, if I give them a stimulant, which is the drug that is the first line treatment for ADHD, um, they're gonna, it's gonna lower their seizure threshold and they'll, ha they'll have an increased chance of seizures. There's so much evidence to show that that is not the case and for years. And so we, that's a myth that's out there. You need to treat the ADHD, the anxiety, the depression, and you don't wanna add to the problem by having an untreated mental health disorder that is incredibly good to know that those medications are safe and that it's not going to affect the seizures. You know, ideally insurance covers these sorts of evaluations and, but it doesn't always. It doesn't. What do you recommend in those situations? So depending on what the issue is. So if it's a learning problem and your child is struggling in school, you, everybody, no matter where they are, has the right to ask for an evaluation from the school. They may do it a little differently than what I do, but they're at least going to get those basics. IQ scores, like what is their thinking skills and their academics? You know, how are they doing? And usually that's what we care about as parents, right? If they're reading, if they're doing their math, those kinds of things. So a school 
is mandated to do that by law and it's free. Again, there's sometimes weights and things like that, but that is a very good place to start if you can't give it, get it covered by insurance. There's other things you could do. You know, I live in an area where there's a lot of universities and sometimes um, they'll have training programs that can give you an evaluation for free or on a sliding scale by a trainee. So those are some kind of out of the box options, but I would definitely start with school first. And then the other thing that we have, you know, I know all the pa- the parents listening um, are, you know, get their pit bull skills going and they got to go after and appeal those, those things. And you can ask us, I have tons of templates for neurologists, for parents to say, these are the reasons why this needs to be seen by a neuropsychologist. Um, because things like memory, that's not a skill that the school typically evaluates. But if you have something like temporal lobe epilepsy, it's a very specific skill in children that doesn't even always show up as a problem for other disorders, but it's very specific to epilepsy and you do want to get their memory checked out. So they could have a true memory problem as opposed to an attention problem, you know, or something like that. Talking a lot about young children you know, getting them to see a neuropsychologist, getting them in for an assessment, taking or, you know, for mental health therapy, you know, a younger child is easier to convince of these things or just, you know, brute parent force. Um, Teenagers can certainly be a little trickier, you know, and their issues are just as present and potentially even affect them great in a, in a greater fashion. What do you suggest tips and tricks for parents who are trying to convince their teenager that they need this psychological help? Yeah. You know, teenagers, just normal development do, they want to separate, right? That's, that's what they're supposed to be doing. They want their independence. They want to stretch their arms and say, I don't need you mom and dad, you know, and I want to be with my friends. Epilepsy puts a little wet blanket on that because sometimes they need some extra supervision. They don't have the independence if they can't drive, you know, if it's something like that. And as parents, you know, I'm being worried that my child is going to have a seizure is something, you know, especially if it's a new onset, I'm going to be watching them a little bit more like a hawk just at the point where they don't want to be watched. (laughs) Right. So having that understanding of each other. What are the things that can be done that sort of help both sides? And that's the place that I always start um, is what do you want? What does the child want? You know, the teen want? And where are those shared things that you can agree on? Okay. It's not okay if I don't know where you are. And I have actually helped many a teen get a smartphone because guess what? You can track your teen. If, and, but that's the, that's the agreement. If you get a smartphone, you need to have the tracker on. <laughs> you know, So you can find ways that both sides are going to be happy, but engaging both sides in order to come up with the plan because everyone needs to agree. Like as a parent, there's a red line, you have to be safe, 
and I have to know that you're safe and you have to be with someone that knows what potentially could happen, what your seizure looks like, where your rescue meds are, all those kinds of things. And so that child needs, that teen needs to go through a few steps in order to, to allow the parent to feel safe. So and having a friend know that they have seizures, sometimes that's the first step. The teenager doesn't want to disclose to anybody. And that's they're not going to be able to do what they want to do unless they disclose, you know. So there's a there's a few processes, but the most important thing is doing it together and, and finding that common ground of agreement. And this I'm guessing that a neuropsychologist can help negotiate that, sort of arbitrate these agreements mediate so that a those resolutions can be decided upon yeah would be exponentially helpful yeah and i think what is helpful with the feedback so we'll do a bunch of testing and sort of give a profile of strengths and weaknesses and the feedback we give recommendations and so during that point, we're hopefully giving both the parents and the child the rationale for why we're saying we need to do what we do. So, um, or why we're suggesting what we're suggesting. And the same thing is true if there's, uh, you know, the social problems can come for a lot of reasons. There's some kids that just don't get the social cues. That's that's sort of one issue. There's other kids that sort of have the stigma attached and are afraid, you know, to to disclose what they are going through with their peers and don't know how to talk about it. And so depending on each child, we may go through that and and we may have to have some other follow-up sessions that can be with a neuropsychologist that could be with a regular psychologist as well, a therapist that you might see more often if depending on again, sort of how big those issues are and working, you know, medicines are one thing for dealing with anxiety, depression, you know, stress and stigma, um, family dynamics, all those kinds of things. Um, but going to a therapist, a social worker, a school counselor to come up with coping strategies and kind of doing that talk therapy to work things out is also really important and sometimes more effective than the medicines alone. So. We had a guest on the show just a few weeks ago, uh, a teen who discussed how she went to um, an epilepsy group therapy session and how much she enjoyed that. Is that something that you recommend as well? Yeah, and definitely for teens, right? So again, back at this, belonging is kind of a key thing for teens. So finding their peeps, you know, and their community that they can say, okay, this is where I belong, whatever that is. And for, for some, it is the shared experience. We have some of those groups, not always specific to epilepsy, but having a chronic medical condition, um, you know, and understanding what that's like for, for anybody that has to deal with that um, for school, for friends, for relationships. So I think that can be really helpful so they don't feel so alone. And what do you suggest for the younger child who is perhaps a little more apprehensive or nervous about getting evaluation or, you know, getting that psychological assistance? Yeah. So I think sometimes that is not to blame the parents, but I'm going to have the parents do a little check on themselves on this one. 
is it them or is it you and your nerves, right? So, or is it you and your preconceived ideas about this? Because a lot of times a younger child's going to take the cue from their parents about how this is. Going to a psychologist is just like checking your heart and, you know, your growth. You need a mental brain check. So going, you know, to a, a mental health professional is is the same as going to a pediatrician where you're just checking your brain, making sure that you're on track um, and developing in the way that you would expect. And if there's any issues, any concerns that you're able to talk, ask questions, is this normal? All the things that you would do. And a parent that portrays that same kind of attitude, a child will usually pick up on that as well. And, and explaining it at that level of just a brain check, see how you're thinking and feeling, you know. Yeah, it sounds like this neuropsychology piece is, um, it's sort of refreshing because it's a, it's a solutions-oriented therapy, that there are treatments, that, you know, there is proof positive here of things that work and that can help. I hope that this information that you've so graciously provided for our families listening can can really help um, shine a light forward and and let them know that there is um, this specialty that there is this help out there that can help with those behavioral and psychological comorbidities that so frequently come along with epilepsy Madison thank you so much for uh, for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Madison, for sharing your insights and expertise on mental health in children and teens with epilepsy. For more than 20 years, Cure Epilepsy has been dedicated to funding patient-focused research to find a cure for epilepsy. You can help us in our mission by visiting cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Through research, there is hope. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cure Epilepsy. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. Cure Epilepsy strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical conditions be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.